show. This is Peter together with a wonderful eminent guest um, who I'll tell you about in just a moment. He has been with us before, uh, about six months ago, and he had such a great reaction then when he read The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Some people thought he was the ancient mariner himself, that we, we wanted him back. Welcome, John Simopoulos, Dean of Degrees, St. Catherine's College, Oxford. Nice to have you back with us again. Very nice to be here. Now, this is a special occasion for us because it's our Christmas special show, and you've brought in some wonderful selections of verse and prose, well, to entertainers and illuminators and generally movers. I would like to start, though, by asking you one or two questions that we've had in from listeners about you yourself. Now, you had a rather unusual upbringing, didn't you? You were, the, in fact, the son of the Greek ambassador to the UK. Yes, but um, uh, I was brought up uh, for the early years in the United States because my father was Greek minister there. Uh, we only came over in 1935, so I've um, only been here for um, 76 years. A mere 76 years. <laughs> Do you feel Greek in any way? Well, I'm not very good at ancient Greek, uh, so that's, uh, that's a dead end. Um, I like Greek food, um, and in fact, yes, I like Greek food, so that, that's Greek about me. I'm not sure how much I like the Greeks, but then again, I'm not sure how much I like the... English or the Spaniards or the Germans or anybody else. Uh, I only like people when they're oddballs, yes. like me. They don't have to be quite so odd as me, but it does help. Now, you've taught at Oxford most of your life, haven't you? Yes. And your subject is philosophy. Was. I don't, uh, I don't really do it anymore. But yes. Philosophy. Do philosophers ever retire? This one has. Well, John, we're very keen to know what the first work is that you've chosen. Can you um, introduce it, please, and tell us who the author is? Yes. Um, you're going to get a mixed bag of um, prose and poetry and century, for that matter. This was written by John Donne, I forget exactly when, but uh, early 17th century or late 16th century. It's very often called a poem. That's, of course, idiotic. It's not a poem. Um, it's part of a meditation. The meditation isn't all that long, but it's very dense. He was a strange man. John Donne, Dean of St. Paul's, um, but also a writer of fiercely erotic verse and very complicated, complicatedly thought out uh, poems and indeed prose. This is just a bit of um, uh, meditation number 17. He wrote it with death in mind. Jolly way to begin a program, yes? Uh, he wrote it with death in mind, his own death. He only lasted another four or five months after delivering himself. 
of this, and um, it's very well known. You may have heard one or two phrases from it. Um, you'll find it quite easily on the internet, and um, it bears rereading and then reading the whole thing, the whole of the meditation to yourselves. I think probably aloud, like uh, so many things. So um, just um, find a moment when you can do it and just speak it and hear yourself and hear John Donne speaking through you. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls it tolls for thee. The next one is, um, well, the next two are by William Blake. The first one is so nearly, but my goodness it isn't, mawkish, called The Little Black Boy. And the next one after that, the other one, is The Tiger. And um, both of these have to be read out loud. I want you to think of my readings as being like steps to somewhere high up. And when, you're, when you reach the high up bit, you can do without the steps, throw them away. Forget my reading, and you read it out loud to yourselves or to your friends. They're extraordinary poems. They're very different. So as I say, the first one, uh, speaks for itself. The second one, if you are doubtful about the meaning, carry on being doubtful. Anybody who isn't is a fool. So this is the little black boy. My mother bore me in the southern wild, and I am black. But oh, my soul is white. White as an angel is the English child. But I am black, as if bereaved of light. My mother taught me underneath a tree, and sitting down before the heat of day, she took me on her lap and kissed me, and pointing to the east began to say, Look on the rising sun. There God does live, and gives his light and gives his heat away. And flowers and trees and beasts and men receive comfort in morning 
joy in the noonday. And we are put on earth a little space that we may learn to bear the beams of love. And these black bodies and this sunburnt face is but a cloud and like a shady grove. For when our souls have learnt the heat to bear, the cloud will vanish. We shall hear his voice saying, Come out from the grove, my love and care, and round my golden tent like lambs rejoice. Thus did my mother say, and kissed me. And this I say to little English boy, when I from black and he from white cloud free, and round the tent of God like lambs we joy, I'll shade him from the heat till he can bear to lean in joy upon our father's knee. And then I'll stand and stroke his silver hair and be like him, and he will then love me. consider performing in public? No. Oh, yes, um, but only since the age of 80. I discovered that um, uh, what until then I realised I could do in private, I could do in public, namely make people laugh. So um, I've been making them laugh ever since. Uh, none of my jokes um, are in fact funny, um, but that doesn't stop people laughing because what I specialise in is context. Very funny, yes? A context. Um, within, I create the context out of what I've got, and if I want people to laugh, boy, they do. Sounds like the philosophy of humour to me. You've obviously given us a lot of thought, a lot of analysis here. Well, you could have fooled me. Um, now, The Tiger. The Tiger's a very different poem. I really don't want to say much about it. It's just so extraordinary that you must uh, read it and read it until um, until you say uh, and until you until you can feel um, the uh, the absolute wonder and splendor and and force of it. Uh, it begins with the lines: "Tiger, tiger, burning bright," and most poems, obviously not poems by people who make a speciality of uh, being a peasant poet or something like that, or Robbie Burns, um, have to be read in a fairly standard way. But if you start that poem, I'm not going to do I'll just do the first line, the first two lines. Uh, in a thick uh, country accent, I can't do... Uh, most accents, but I can do sort of English, some English country accents. Uh, you'll find that it's uh, the, the words are so extraordinary that it simply doesn't matter. You'll still be transfixed. 
Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. That's not standard English. But uh, if that's the way you speak and you want to read the rest of the poem like that to yourself, fine. You'll have a great experience. Anyhow, um, I'm going to have a great experience now because I love this poem so much. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what the shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain? In what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp? Dare its deadly terrors clasp. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Terrific. Wow. That's, it's such a visual poem, isn't it? You can see it. You can see it. Of course, Blake was a painter. I forgot to mention that. Yes, but, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about all sorts of intense primary colours here, Rousseau and... Yeah, all the rest of it. It's oh, yes, really it's very Don Giovanni Russo. Totally, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The next offering to you is a goodie from the middle of the 18th century, written by Samuel Johnson, the man who wrote the um, first big definitive English dictionary, uh, to Lord Chesterfield. Uh, Lord Chesterfield was uh, what we'd now call one of the great and good, but um, 
Samuel Johnson had every reason to realize that he was not particularly great or particularly good. He wanted some help, uh, just some encouragement, some publicity, some, a good word from on high from Lord Chesterfield. Didn't get it. But then when the dictionary was about to be published and uh, sort of news uh, snippets came out uh, here and there in the London literary world that uh, that was so. Chesterfield heard of it and scurried to um, Johnson to, um, well, to try and get his name associated with it. Johnson was having none of this, and uh, he wrote this letter to Chesterfield, who, I learnt quite recently, had such an astonishingly thick skin that, although the letter shows him in an appalling light, he showed it to all his friends, saying, look, isn't this a wonderful letter written by Samuel Johnson? He didn't understand it, did he? I don't know what he understood or didn't understand Anyhow, enough of this blather. Here is the letter. To the Right Honourable the Earl of Chesterfield. My Lord, I have been lately informed by the proprietor of the world that two papers in which my dictionary is recommended to the public were written by your Lordship. To be so distinguished is an honour which being very little accustomed to favours from the great, I know not well how to receive, or in what terms to acknowledge. When, upon some slight encouragement, I first visited your lordship, I was overpowered, like the rest of mankind, by the enchantment of your address, and could not forbear to wish that I might boast myself le vainqueur du vainqueur de la terre, that I might claim that regard for which I saw the world contending, that I found my attendance so little encouraged that neither pride nor modesty would suffer me to continue it. When I had once addressed your lordship in public, I had exhausted all the art of pleasing which a retired and uncourtly scholar can possess. I had done all that I could, and no man is well pleased to have his all neglected, be it ever so little. Seven years, my lord, have now passed since I waited in your outward rooms or was repulsed from your door during which time I have been pushing on my work through difficulties of which it is useless to complain and have brought it, at last, to the verge of publication without one act of assistance, one word of encouragement or one smile of favour. Such treatment I did not expect, for I never had a patron before. The shepherd 
in Virgil grew at last acquainted with love and found him a native of the rocks. Is not a patron, my lord, one who looks with unconcern on a man struggling for life in the water, and when he has reached ground, encumbers him with help? The notice which you have been pleased to take of my labours, had it been early, had been kind. But it has been delayed till I am indifferent and cannot enjoy it, till I am solitary and cannot impart it, till I am known and do not want it. I hope it is no very cynical asperity not to confess obligation where no benefit has been received, or to be unwilling that the public should consider me as owing that to a patron which Providence has enabled me to do for myself. Having carried on my work thus far with so little obligation to any favourer of learning, I shall not be disappointed, though I should conclude it, if less be possible, with less. For I have been long awakened from that dream of hope in which I once boasted myself with so much exultation, my lord, your lordship's most humble, most obedient servant, Samuel Johnson. Now, there's a bit of bitterness in that, isn't there? Quite a lot of bitterness in that. Oh, yes. And a lot That's of so dignified. Like yes. Absolutely, a total class act as always. But a lot of us have felt like I mean, we we can we know that feeling, don't we? You know, why why didn't you do something to help me all those years ago? Oh, yes. Now, you know, when I'm successful, I don't need it. Anymore. Yes, exactly. Do you think um, you must have known a, a lexicographer or two? Do you think they tend to be, be a bit on the uh, you know sharp side? Well, I suppose so, because in a way, uh, um, in a way, they're. Um, uh, concerned with correctitude, but don't forget um, that a lexicographer nowadays thinks of himself, I believe, for the most part, um, very differently from how Johnson uh, would have thought of himself or anybody other than Johnson engaged in um, lexicography. That is to say, in those days, you wanted to protect the, um, the public. Admittedly, a certain part of the public, um, in other words, if they were completely uneducated, then they wouldn't even know which way to hold the book up. Um, and if they were amongst the very, very few, they would only read the thing in order to find out what old Johnson says about whatever it is. But basically, what he was after was getting things right. Now, um, a lexicographer, or most lexicographers, uh, consider uh, their duty to be quite different, namely, to record what people actually 
say to record the way they speak. So, for in, the way they speak. So, if, for instance, through sheer ignorance, people, uh, enough people, say bouquet instead of bouquet, then you will find the um, Oxford English Dictionary, which has some very good people on it, but also a large number of second second raters and general sort of lickspittles, um, people who are only too happy to record um, uh, ignorant, what I would call perfectly happily, ignorant usage. So there is that difference. It used to be um, uh, the, 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 the function of a lexicographer was to be correct and it was to, to use the sort of um, bogus phrase, prescriptive. Mm. Now it's descriptive. It's all very relative now, isn't it? What? It's all very relative now, I suppose. Yes, yes. Yes. Are you a stickler, John? Am I a stickler? Mm. Yes, I am. Why? Because I like things to be right. And um, there are certain... Um, I, I'm, I'm not, for instance, as some people might be, and I don't have any time for them. Um, you mustn't, the sort of person who would say, you mustn't say, okay. Mm. Um, why can't you say, all right? Well, the answer is, about eight or 900 million uh, people say, okay. And now that's probably a conservative estimate. And if you wish to sort of cower in a corner saying all right and wincing whenever you hear okay, I think there's something the matter with you, not the people who say okay. On the other hand, if um, you really think that um, disinterested means uninterested, mm. well, then go to the dictionary and teach yourself that it doesn't. So I'm a stickler in that sort of way. Mm. And she'll go on stickling uh, for as long as I can stickle. is an example of what I think of when I'm just, well, really when I'm thinking either of um, poetry or very often of um, novels. Um, if you think of a novel that you, um, that you really like and maybe you've read more than once, you recognize in it both the intense particularity of it. In other words, this was written by Trollope or Charles Dickens or whoever, um, and it's very much of its time. And um, uh, whichever character you choose, they are very lavishly painted in. So you um, have the, the feeling that you are uh, almost eavesdropping on somebody 
That's what I, that's what I mean by particular. And yet, um, it has universal appeal uh, by being a good novel, by being that mysterious thing, a good piece of writing. Um, I mean, people just don't have, no matter who I'm speaking to at this moment, I know perfectly well that you are not uh, to any noticeable degree like Alice in Wonderland. But whether you are old or young, male or female, or wherever you come from, it's pretty likely that you've read Alice in Wonderland and that it has something very direct to you because it somehow um, conveys universality through its particularity. And um, uh, I'm really not going to say much more about this particular poem that I'm about to read now. It's, um, it's sad. It's written by a very eminent uh, black American poet who became um, a um, um, professor of poetry. And um, he had all you need know, I think, not even need, but all that I'd like to tell you is that um, he had a very un un unhappy childhood. So here is a poem by Robert Hayden, Those Cold Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labour in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering, breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Speaking indifferently to him, who had driven out the cold, and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? Your own upbringing. It was very unlike that. I was very secure. Your father must have been a very busy, somewhat distant person, though, perhaps? He was distant and affectionate. My mother was distant and affectionate. But uh, my nanny was the person who uh, sort of brought it together. written, so I understand, uh, it was written by a schoolmaster at Eton, which is uh, sort of the, the top 
public school, that's to say from 13 to 18 um, in England. And it was written um, not, it seems, uh, originally um, to be um, anthologized and uh, well thought of and well spoken of and memorized and all the rest of it, um, but simply to um, uh, drive home some point in ancient Greek, because the author, William Corey, um, taught ancient Greek um, at Eton. It has a particular resonance for me because I was asked to um, say something at the funeral of a very close friend of mine. And um, I, um, first of all, I refused. Then I asked whether it would be all right if I read a short poem. And this was the poem that I read. And um, I nearly broke down in reading it not because of the tremendous sadness in the poem, because it isn't tremendously sad, but because of my own uh, feelings about the loss of my friend. And uh, it's rather a good example, very personal, obviously, but rather a good example of the relevance of... Uh, good poetry, which I hope you'll think this is, to one's ordinary life. Not that I'm always losing very good friends, but it's just something that happened uh, and happens in the course of practically everybody's life. So here it is, Heraclitus, the person it's um, about, was a Greek philosopher. They told me, Heraclitus, they told me you were dead. They brought me bitter news to hear and bitter tears to shed. I wept as I remembered how often you and I had tired the sun with talking and sent him down the sky. And now that thou art lying, my dear old Carian guest, a handful of grey ashes, long, long ago at rest, still thy pleasant voices, thy nightingales awake, for death he taketh all away, but them he cannot take. Corey, of course, was a Incredibly renowned teacher. Was he? Yes, he was. Um, and he had um, he wrote the best defence of education that I've ever seen. Good heavens. Um, and he said, let me put a few points to you. He said that education is not really so much about knowledge at all as about arts and habits. And he names some habits that he tried to inculcate in his, uh, in his flock. 
habit of attention, the art of expression, the art of assuming at a moment's notice a new intellectual position, the art of entering quickly into another person's thoughts, the habit of submitting to censure and refutation, um, acquiring taste, discrimination, mental courage, and ultimately self-knowledge. Um, your thoughts on that? It's just breathtaking. Isn't it? It's absolutely wonderful. Mm. Well, I, 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 I didn't know this, but I mean, it's, uh, it's got it all. That is exactly what education is. Or should be. Uh, I, I, or should be. I mean, really, every aspiring school teacher or university te teacher of any sort should be encouraged to think about those um, phrases and what they mean. And almost, uh, the teacher in me says, to pass an examination in them, because that is exactly what, what teaching is. Quite wonderful. Thank you for telling me that. rather an odd man out. Um, it's by, the, <clears throat> by Osbert Sitwell, who was one of a trio of very talented Sitwell siblings. Osbert, who was a writer. Sir Chevrolet, who was a writer of a different sort. And Edith, who mainly, but not wholly, wrote um, poetry. So they were all scribbling away, and they um, were all uh, eccentric in their, in their different ways. I can't remember anything at the moment about Sir Chevrolet. Um, oh, yes, I can. Uh, he and Osbert thought up a wheeze. The father, who was called George, was very excited because he was... They were all in Italy, and um, they were having some member of the British royal family to stay in their house uh, for two or three days. And um, uh, a day or two before they came, the father happened to ask the young Sitwells what blotto meant. Well, a blotto is, in fact, rather a, uh, rather a dated... Uh, phrase now, but it wasn't dated then, and it meant drunk, uh, or to use a slightly more vulgar phrase for it, pissed. It was not a polite word, and it was perfectly clear what it meant. Anyhow, what um, one of the boys said to the old man was, um, oh, it means tired, father. So when the royal family 
arrived and descended from their motor car, um, Sitwell Pear came out and greeted them and said, Well, I'll show you your bedrooms because you must all be feeling brotto. And um, this was the sort of joke at which they excelled. Edith Sitwell, I'm not sure about her jokes, but uh, certainly a, a funny description of her was as being like a high altar on the move. Uh, because she was, she was draped in the most extraordinary garments. Right, so here we are, this um, idiosyncratic um, poem with one or two lines in it, and I'm not going to tell you what they are, either before or after, as you'll know perfectly well. Uh, you have to get it uh, on, on the internet, it's quite easy and read it and say it and read it and say it, and I think you'll like it as much as I do. Anyway, here we are. On the coast of Coromandel, dance they to the tunes of Handel. Corally, that coral coast correlates the bone to ghost, till word and limb and note seem one, blending, binding act to tone. All day long they point the sandal on the coast of Coromandel, lemon-yellow legs all bare, pirouette to peruked air. From the first green shoots of morn, cool as northern hunting horn, till the nightly tropic wind, with its rough tongue to grating rind, shatters the frail spires of spice, imaged in the lawns of rice, mirror flat, and mirror green is that lovely water's sheen. Saraband and rigadoon dance they through the purring moon while the lacquered waves expand golden dragons on the sand. Dragons that must, steaming, die from the sun's hot agony when elephants of royal blood plod to bed through lilied mud. Then evening, sweet as any mango, bids them do a gay fandango, minuet, jig or gavotte. How they hate the turkey trot, the nautch dance and the highland fling, just as they will never sing any music save by Handel on the coast of Coromandel. And yes, John did say wind instead of wind because that was another little trick that... Osbert played on you, wasn't it? Well, yes, Peter, but what about this? Dragons that must steaming die from the hot sun's agony. Mm. No. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. But eccentric. Yes. People think you're eccentric. But fun, I hope. I think so. Your selections so far have been um, deeply moving, deeply emotional poems. Are you, are you one of those people who's got a ostensible, hard outer shell and really you're just soft and mushy inside? Well, whatever my shell is, whether it's hard or not, I'm inside it. So I'm the last person to um, make any comments about it. Um, you can say what you like. 
Anyhow, um, I don't think um, the poem that I'm about to read now is going to bring a tear to anybody's eye. It's a funny poem. It's by Edward Lear, who, um, well, I don't think he invented, but he first really popularized the limerick form. And another, another poet who was also a pretty good hand at the painting as well. He was a wonderful watercolorist, mm. too, and he traveled widely in um, Greece and Albania and Turkey, and um, he led a rather brackety life, so I understand. But um, uh, none of this, none of his rackety life is in this. It's just pure whimsy, but it's, um, it's whimsy without tapping you on the shoulder. Uh, and just saying, oh, aren't I whimsical? It's whimsical, you, but it's not cutesical. It's not exactly. Nothing cute about it. Well, <clears throat> here we go. The owl and the pussycat went to sea in a beautiful pea-green boat. They took some honey and plenty of money and wrapped it up in a five-pound note. The owl looked up at the stars above and sang to a small guitar... Oh, lovely pussy. Oh, pussy, my love. What a beautiful pussy you are. You are. You are. What a beautiful pussy you are. Pussy said to the owl, You elegant fowl, how charmingly sweet you sing. Oh, let us be married. Too long we have tarried. But what shall we do for a ring? They sailed away for a year and a day to the land where the bong tree grows. And there in a wood, a piggywig stood with a ring at the end of his nose. His nose. His nose. With a ring at the end of his nose. Dear pig, are you willing to sell for one shilling your ring? Said the piggy. I will. So they took it away and were married next day by the turkey who lives on the hill. They dined on mince and slices of quince, which they ate with a runcible spoon. And hand in hand, on the edge of the sand, they danced to the light of the moon. The moon. The moon. They danced to the light of the moon. been listening to a selection of prose and verse chosen by John Simopoulos. John chose In Order, Meditation 17 by John Donne, The Little Black Boy by William Blake, The Tiger also by William Blake, Samuel Johnson's Letter to Lord Chesterfield, Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden, Heraclitus by William Johnson Corey, On the Coast of Coromandel by Osbert Sitwell, and The Owl and the Pussycat by Edward Lear. Music you've heard comes from Magnitune and is available for purchase on their website magnitune.com. Tracks in order were Air Cooled from the album Switch On by Ormeadow and Rob Costlow, Fantasia One from the album Louis Milan El Maestro by Edward Martin, Amnesia from the album Lines Build Walls by Aaron Starks, 
Full Moon from the album Sky by Ty Burho. Imagine from the album Tango Jazz Live in Studio C by Scott Holgren. Cherry Blossom Falls from the album 169 by Stuart Sweeney. Gavotta from the album A Celtic Celebration by Da Camera. And Valse from the album Tango Jazz Live in Studio C by Scott Holgren. This has been a production of Radio Litopia. Follow all our shows at our website, litopia.com slash radio.